Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm, Monday Morning Edition. I'm here with uh, Dwayne McEwen. He is the principal and creative director of Chicago-based DMAC Architecture PC. Uh, he comes to architecture through construction. The son of a builder, he had early exposure in the discipline, which led him to become proprietor of a successful Canadian construction firm early in his firm. Dwayne, welcome inside the firm. How are you doing? Well, listen, thank you so much for having me. Doing um, great. Good, good. I think I think it's very interesting the the uh, contractor or construction person's uh, path into architecture. My business partner Lance um, worked for uh, construction before, then going to a community college, and then realizing like, oh, I can go become an architect, and then went that route. So, uh, what experiences did you have growing up? Did did you know that you wanted to be an architect, or were you thinking construction? I mean, I think, you know, early on, I mean, my, my dad was a contractor builder at his own construction company and literally the only summer job I've ever known since I was 12, literally, which was probably in the way. But, you know, you take me to work with him. I would be taking nails at the boards, whatever. But, you know, fast forward three or four summers later, I'm in high school um, and I decided, you know, I said, like, Dad, I'm, I'm 16. Like, I want to build my own house. So we literally, you know, he bought two lots. He, the first summer he built one. He built next to me to make sure that I had it under control. And in high school, I built two spec homes. You know, I was in 11th grade and 12th grade. And I think people that know the world of architecture, I think sadly I made more money in hockey or in, um, in high yeah. school than I did for the first decade of my professional career, which is, which is okay. Yeah. You know, the rewards aren't necessarily tangible, you know, in this profession, but um, definitely you can't put it in the bank, but they're, they're, the rewards are still there for sure. So what made you then leap into architecture? So I think, you know, or, 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 or maybe, maybe there's some time in between that process. You know, I, grew, I mean, I grew up in a very small, excuse me, place on the East coast of Canada, you know, hundred thousand people, Prince Edward Island, small province. <clears throat> some of my, some of my dad's friends were architects and they literally talked me out of going into architecture school. They're like, there's not enough work for architects here. Um, so <clears throat> I went into engineering. You know, I did two years of engineering. One of my engineering professors talked to me and he said, you know, have you ever thought about architecture? Because he seemed like I cared way too much. <clears throat> he seemed, I, I seemed to care way too much about what things look like, you know, in this sort of <laughs> or maybe he just wanted me out of the engineering, you know, field. So, you know, fast forward, it seemed to become natural. I applied. I went to the Technical, Technical University of Nova Scotia, which is tons, which is now Dow Tech, you know, in Halifax, in Nova Scotia, Canada. So did a, actually did a four years bachelor master's, um, two weeks off every summer, very intense, two work terms. So great, great experience. And, you know, I think looking back on it, my construction background was, was both a curse and a crutch, more of a crutch sort of my profession now, but I think early on, I felt like I had to unlearn what I thought architecture was. You know, I was doing these very modest builder homes. You know, we barely had plans. We would sort of make it up on the fly and, you know, sort of got to build one-to-one. And I think in a way that sort of helped me that when I'm drawing or designing now, 
you know, it's not just line work in front of me. I'm sort of in the room, in the space. I think I sort of trace that back to, and my dad would be, oh, let's make the kitchen a little bigger. Let's move the bed, you know, but literally we'd be laying out boards on the floor and sort of doing it one-to-one. So I think some of those experiences early on have definitely, you know, affected the process in terms of how it'll work. But I also think it gives us a lot of credibility with contractors. And um, I sort of understand why a lot of contractors hate architects. You know, if you've never built anything and just because you drew it, doesn't make you the expert in the room necessarily. And I think I've always tried to learn something from you know, every project we do. And sometimes it's pushing back hard, you know, against contractors that don't want to do it because they're lazy. And sometimes it's, they have a better way and you can learn from them. So I think it's sort of understanding, you know, that the sort of benefit analysis of sort of being aware and being present on site is something that's, I think, elevated you know, our practice to where I think most of our clients realize that we, we sort of lean in and do a lot more than most architectural firms. And if we can't, you know, it's not unusual for me to fly in with um, a fishing rod case that's 10 feet long, but there's no fishing rods in it. It's a mock-up or a sample that we did in the shop in the office to show the contractor, like, no, you can do this. This is important that you get this right for the project. Yeah. I think one of the main benefits of going out in the field and constructing is it's taking all those lines on a page and everything that the professor talks on the, on the whiteboard and the sections that they draw or that um, a firm owner draws. And it takes those lines and it makes it concrete reality. Like, oh, there's the stud wall. Oh, there's the, the anchor boat, bolt. Oh, these, uh, here's the, where the um, vapor barrier goes. And just seeing it in person translates so much better than even hours and hours of, of just drawing on the computer. But like you said, there is a fine line. Because last, Lance, my business partner, who had a lot of firm experiences, um, his drawings in the beginning of school were very uh, plain Jane, practical, whatever was happening in North Dakota, which is, I, I don't think is the pillar of architecture. I haven't heard anyone <laughs> <Could> say <be>. that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe enough people haven't been there. Um, but he had to learn out of that. Um, and, and, you know, by third, fourth year, then he was doing more creative stuff, but then could understand how things go together. Um, so it, it definitely is, is that balance for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, early on too, one of my favorite professors in school and was my thesis supervisor, ultimately, like Brian McKay Lyons, you know, Nova Scotia, you know, wonderful architect, you know, educator. And I remember doing a building studio with him. I think it was my second year, but he made us, we designed these projects, then they made us draw a building one to, or draw a detail one to one. So it wasn't this sort of cute little drawing, it was this massive sheet. And, you know, if you had, a, had to draw it on an eight by 10 sheet of plywood to make it fit, then, you know, he made us do that sort of work so that it, it gave you, uh, it gave you a sense of, you know, connections, details, and stuff that really matters in architecture. Because we're really dealing with, you know, walls, vertical plane, horizontal plane. And those, you know, how do those details come together, which is really, you know, sort of our life's work and sort of, I think in a way, the currency of our craft, like how do we, how do those things come together? And that's where the magic happens most of the time, I think. Absolutely. Um, How did you get from Canada to the U.S.? Um, Sort of a long story. So I'd worked at Building Design Partnership in London, my first work experience, you know, this massive 700 person firm. Um, You know, we worked on the channel tunnel between you know, London and Francis back in, I think, in 1988. So that dates me a little bit. You know, fast forward a couple of years later, 
I wore, I was in Barcelona pre-Olympics working in 1990 and some of the Olympic stuff, you know, amazing experience, much more boutique firm. And I realized then that, you know, when I have my own practice, that's what I want to do. So much like I went to Barcelona and London to sort of study and learn the craft of architecture, Chicago in the early nineties, um, a very good friend that was coming here that I went to school with. So we moved here together. And there was an old saying that if you can't find work anywhere, you can find it in Chicago. So in the early 90s, mm -hmm. that seemed important. I arrived to look for work the day that the Chicago River sprung a leak. I don't know if you remember that when somebody drove through the, the river and they started to fill all the underground tunnels. So most of my interviews were shut down because they had evacuated the loop essentially. Um, one architect, Jordan Moser, um, was hiring, looking for somebody with 30 years experience. So I applied fresh out of school, you know, so yeah. we got the, you know, the stiff arm, the first meeting, but I think because of my construction experience, yeah, I sort of forced my way in. And I think a month later, you know, I was on a plane with them flying to Germany with some of the, you know, custom mock-ups we had made in the office where we built other shops. So I think sometimes, um, yeah, so coming to Chicago was really, I thought I'd be here for one or two years and sort of move on. And then I had an opportunity from a client that somebody cold called me. I think I turned 30, got married and quit my job the same month. And nice. Good. Okay. Yeah. You, you always know. advise that you do that, right? That's the, yeah, exactly. that's the way. My, you know, my wife was a nurse for, you know, running the Ghani OR at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. So I think... She was up for it, supported, you know, the first six years, but start open the open DMAC in 1995 and really haven't looked back. Honestly, it was, um, you know, we've now we're, you know, we've done work all over the country, hundreds of projects. And it's been, it's been pretty amazing. Actually, it's, I think it's one of those things when you're that young starting and you don't know how hard it's going to be, I think in a way that's a good thing because you might never start otherwise. So you were working super long hours, you know, didn't matter. And again, it was always about the, it's always about the quality of the work that it was, I always said, you know, to even the staff, it's, you know, the money comes and goes, but your reputation will last forever. So that's really been the focus. So I think during the up, up and down turns, you know, in 08, we've actually doubled in size and it seemed like a lot of the clients that we were, we worked incredibly hard for over the years and we're still doing stuff we were on their short list, you know, with people they still wanted to use for, you know, for the stuff they were still moving forward yeah. with. There's a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And basically one of the ideas that it lays out is the people that know how to do anything, semiconductors, making cars, they know too much to start over. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny too, because I think architects, well, the analogy is, is, is Tesla. You know, they know too much about cars to say we're going to start from scratch and actually make this work because they know all the hurdles. Um, I think that's almost a problem, too, in the construction construction industry. Um, and this is just a, a total tangent and, and maybe get your thoughts on it. So uh, housing affordability is, is, is a big issue. And the, there's certain ways to make houses from custom houses to uh, developer houses and then now modular houses. And there's so many parts to architecture and so many things that need to fit in and so many things that need to work with the city and the bureaucrats and, and all that. It's like you almost need an experienced person, but that experience also weighs you down. It's like, okay, then we need to do it this way, not you know a new and innovating way. Um, I don't know if 
that's totally tangential to this or if you had any thoughts about that? No, and I think, you know, I've always said, like, being the expert in the room is not necessarily an asset a lot of the times because I think if you're coming with, if you come and think you know the answers, then you're not really moving anything forward. But I think in our practice has always been with, um, I think it's sort of knowing that it's more important to ask the right questions than to think you have all the answers because I don't think anyone has all the answers or otherwise they're, if you're not learning and progressing, then I don't know how we're moving the profession forward, honestly. So I think, I think a lot of our best projects have been first, like, you know, this concourse club that we're doing in Miami right now, we didn't do the track, but it's a 77 acre site. We were brought in to do one or two, you know, interiors projects. And we took over the whole project because I think, I think we took a hospitality approach, meaning that the spaces that we design and the buildings that we that we um, construct need to have an emotional impact. Like if you're not, if you're not sort of, if there's no emotion to that space, then what are we doing? So like this guardhouse, for example, or some of the comfort station stuff that you're showing on the screen now, we want to make sure that, you know, we were creating a hospitality type space and that in-between space, like between the buildings, between the North Point garages, between the comfort station between the shade structure so that <clears throat> if there's nothing on track and nothing going on, you just want to hang out in the space because it's, it's a good outdoor room. And I've always said that, you know, architecture is really the space in between, you know, the, <clears throat> it's not the wall architecture, not the wall. It's just, it's a space that you create by drawing that wall or building that wall. So that if, <clears throat> If it's just trying to be interesting, you make a curved wall because you want the wall to be interesting. I think that's something other than architecture. I think it's really, it's really about try, how do you define, how do you define these spaces, and how do you, you know, create like for example, this image right here. We were asked to do the fuel station. Like, why can't your car look better than it ever looked when you for that moment with you and your car? And these are million dollar automobiles that you know these lines of. Uh, light that wrap the structure. We worked could, great. Can you, just, can you describe the picture for people listening? Yeah, so this is literally like, you know, this is racing fuel, whatever. It's, you know, probably $8 a gallon, maybe 16 by now with current <laughs> yeah. fuel rates. But, you know, we're asked to do a fuel station and there's obvious, there's an obvious, you know, way to do it. And they have a, they had a company that does these all the time, but we say, you know, we have this, you know, modified ash, you know, wood underbelly. And we worked with a great lighting designer, Thomas from Lux Populi. Um, and we really want to create this sort of moment. Like when you get out of your car and you put fuel in it, it's, you know, you and your car and it's never looked better. These lines of light that, you know, wrap the contours of this part of automobiles. And it becomes a moment. So we didn't really have to put a sign and say, this is where you put gas in your car. It's not a typical fuel station, but there are all these sort of nodes around the campus and we wanted this to be feel more like a museum campus than, you know, a racetrack, which is, you know, paddock. And you can see even the, a lot of the lights where at nighttime it has a certain ambiance to it. So if you're not on track, you just want to hang out there. I mean, you're 10 miles from South Beach. There's no reason to stay there, but I've been there many nights late and people would rather be here than on the beach. It's, it's just a great vibe. Um, I agree. When I, when I first saw this, I, I'm not a racer. I understand how hard it is um, to actually be good at that. Mm -hmm. And my, my first reaction was, oh, can I just go hang out there? 
Like, can I just, that, that's my inclination is to hang out and just watch it and, and look at the cars. But I, um, and I think too, what's interesting about sort of our process. And again, I did 120 flights last year to Miami commercial, probably another 20 or 30 private with a client. Um, and that's round trip. So probably 60 trips down 60 back, but if there was that ceiling sculpture that was in the temporary clubhouse that we did. I realized that when I was on, I could tell Helios Castronavis, who won Indy four times, professional racer, Brazilian guy, wonderful, wonderful person. He's one of the founding members. And I could always tell when he was on track before I got to the track, because it was just something different about the sound of him taking laps. So I got a recording of him driving the track and one night I came back to the office, headphones on much like you're wearing right now and the eyes closed and just started sketching with charcoal. And then sort of bending with armature wire, these 11 turns of the track and that ceiling sculpture that's in the, in the um, temporary clubhouse. It's a one to 50 scale mock-up or model of the length of the track, but it's really what does the sound of the track look like? So it became if I didn't do all those trips and understand that I didn't sort of eyes wide open in terms of inspiration for what you need to add to the project, I don't know if that piece ever would have happened. I don't think I didn't get there day one, you know, it came out of the process of sort of being there, being present, being, um, you know, sort of, you know, wide awake and letting some of those ideas slip in the back door of the design process, which is to me, that's when projects are good when they teach you something so that, the next one, your sort of survival kit of, of, of things you know. That's why I think they always say architecture is an old person's profession because I think, I think the more you learn, the better prepared you are for the next project often. Yeah. Could you maybe dissect the journey from going off on your own to where you're at? And the specific question is, I feel like sometimes it's hard to explain to certain clients the value that they get. And it's easier once you have a project like the one you just described, where you can show them they want to be there and you can talk to them. And what I'm saying is that it's easier just because you've proven yourself. But your beginning projects, how did, uh, were you able to convey that or did you kind of have to scrap and slowly build up? Or were you able to say, hey, I worked at this firm. This is what I did. I'm awesome. Pay me a bunch of money. Yeah, it was, it was scrap and wrap up. I mean, honestly, it was. I mean, I think somebody told me once, or for, for which famous architect said it, you know, to be an architect, you need either born rich or marry rich, and I'm neither. So yeah. sort of do it the hard way. But I think, you know, my first client, again, when I, Turned 30, got married, quit my job. It was Mark Kochi, sort of a celebrity hair guy in Chicago. And it was a sort of random thing. My, his, one of his partners used to cut my hair, and he hated the design of the salons. So he introduced me to him, um, <clears throat> wanted me to do, you know, do their night, because we were always talking design in the, in the chair. So fast forward, he calls me, and he gave me this, you know, it's in a shopping mall, you know, 30 miles outside of Chicago, he told me later that if I screwed it up, it didn't matter. <laughs> but I worked so hard in that project, you know, very probably underbidded, underpaid, didn't matter. But when we finished it, again, it was sort of about asking the right questions. We had solved so many functional relationships that he had 
hadn't resolved in 20 years before that and building this empire, this sort of you know, salon business. And he wished that he had that in his flagship on Michigan Avenue. So, you know, two years later, we're doing his flagship on Michigan Avenue. And then, you know, a year and a half after that, he's, you know, he bought a penthouse downtown Chicago, right on the lake. And, you know, we did his penthouse and that's sort of the, that's the, the ultimate. It's one thing for a client to trust you with their, their commercial enterprises, but when they ask you to do their house, mm-hmm. you can't screw that up. <laughs> so, I mean, that's sort of, and we've done, we don't do a lot of residential, but most of the residential we do is for, again, the owner of Midtown, we did his like house, March Coachy, we've done, I'd say for some of our best clients we've done, whether it's an Aspen or whatever, we've done you know, the residential properties. So I sort of take that as a sort of badge of honor and that they, they trust us with their personal life as well and where they live. Yeah. I want to read something from your uh, website and, and kind of riff off of it. Um, so, uh, quote, we are an architecture firm, but we are more, uh, but more than that, we are storytellers. From the epics that bring together a series of buildings into a collective experience of a master plan to the antidotes, antidotes of, that weaves together the details of an entire building. So when did you, or had you always had that architecture was the storytelling of the soul of the business of the client? Was that from the get go? Did that kind of evolve? But I think it's, I mean, I know there's, there's, there's a lot of talk about sort of a narrative and architecture or a theme, and I think I look at it in a slightly different way. I think, I think the narrative comes out of the process a little bit in the sense that, um, and I would say early on, like, to every project you start, you only, and this sounds silly, but you only know what you know, which sounds incredibly obvious. You can't know any more than that. So sometimes to sort of move the departure point in the creative process or create a myth around the project, and maybe it's, you know, it's from a book or a story or talking to the client um, or one client in, in New York, you know, he wanted to do this sort of 30s clam project where he wanted me to watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies and... You know, it's, it's for inspiration. You know, I didn't, but I sort of got where he wanted to go. And it, but it did displace the departure point. I mean, we didn't give him this knee jerk response. It didn't have to look like this, but in terms of letting some of those ideas sneak in the back door of the design process, I wouldn't have got there without that, without that dis- displacement of the departure point in the creative process from, from that one client. And I would say, and it's even in the work now, like the, the example of that ceiling sculpture at the Concourse Club, that was another example of, you know, telling the narrative and there's a backstory to it, but it's, we didn't start with that. We didn't say we're going to, what does the sound of the track look like? But I think it's trust in the process in a way that, and that's, and I think in a, in a sort of honest way, that's how we don't become trapped by trend or what's the flavor of the month. So I think we want our work to be timeless in the sense that, you know, it's not it's not ripped off the pages of Pinterest, which is sort of a curse for us because everyone's coming with their Pinterest boards. And what about this? What about this? And at some point, if, I don't know if you paint, but if you paint it, you throw all this stuff, you get mud at the end of the day. So I think it's being very aware of establishing a hierarchy and, again, it sort of goes back to music in a way that 
you know, if it's if there's no space between the notes, it's just noise. And I think architecture designs that way too. So there's that repose or that spot pause that that's sort of where the magic is. And it's and it's a very subjective thing, honestly. Like it's it's sort of, you know, playing off a response, like from a, being a good listener, how a client responds to it. And you might show up at a meeting wanting to present something, so excited about it. And sometimes it's deflating when they don't necessarily love everything. But, you know, two days later, it's like, oh, my God, it's so much better because of that conversation. So I think, again, it's sort of trust in the process. And I've been, you know, I've been on my own for 27 plus years. And there's a great, have an incredible team at the office. And it's a very sort of lateral structure. Like, it's not... I mean, to be fair, it's not a singular effort. Everyone adds value to the process, and it's it's you know been incredible to have a great sort of team in that sense. Yeah, well, maybe I want to bring up a, a project, um, and maybe you can talk through uh, the process um, and, and how that kind of works. The hotel at Midtown. Um, what was yeah, that so process this, like? This is an interesting one. So this is a. It's over half a million square feet of health club and hotel. And this is an interesting one where the hotel is actually an amenity to the health club. We've been doing the client's works for the past decade. Um, we'd never done a hotel before, but sort of convinced them that, you know, one meeting, because he actually came from the hotel world, one meeting he was looking at, you know, giving it to the sort of de facto rest of the hotel designers. And we put a rendering package together. Actually, this one, we said, you know, he said, yeah, that's what I want my hotel to look like. Where is that? It's like, that's your hotel. We just designed it. <laughs> and literally in our office, we ended up building two full-size hotel rooms with showers and toilets and beds in the office. But we had, you know, sort of a warehouse with a mock-up space where we built everything. And <laughs> You know, so I think that was sort of the trust with the with the client and to, to work out every nuance of detail, like even the rotation of the this fire smoke alarm so that you couldn't see that little green light if you're lying in bed. <laughs> like so you don't get that blanket, people are light sensitive, or um, you know, if you look at the detail, you know, for the tissue holder on the adjacent to the sink, you know, it's you can climb in that. It's not going to come out of the wall. I don't know any, if you've seen a lot of hotels, but you'll always see a rat there in the wall. There's, they've been reattached numerous times. So we want to make sure that this thing could survive whatever happened. And in this case, you know, we did the health, we did the entire fitness center. So the, the fitness center's 94% of the square footage. The hotel is 6%. Wow. That must be a huge fitness center. It is massive. And it's sort of, um, It is, you know, people came from all over the world literally to see the fitness center I was done because it sort of transcended what the fitness center experience is. It's is the um, is it just like uh, I don't know a, a local fitness center that everyday people go to, or is it it's, like a, a it's professional? Midtown, Midtown Chicago? So the um, it's actually second or third generation. The I think this goes back to understanding the family too. So we've been doing work for them. We did their first one in Montreal maybe 15 years ago. We've done a lot of remodeling work. And then this is the flagship that was built in the 19th. My clients, his dad built this with his father in the seventies. And, you know, a little more of a backstory, the Alan Schwartz, he used to be the head of the USTA. 
um, I think he was 82 when he took me to Bangkok to meet with the prime minister or deputy prime minister of Thailand because he wanted to do a training facility over there. You know, so got to, you know, four days in Bangkok meeting with um, people over there, but doing the training facility. I got to know him very well on the 24-hour plane ride in both directions for a four-day trip. But, you know, so fast forward, you know, five or six years later, he's asking, you know, what are we doing with the old club? He had this, you know, copper fireplace and some oak paneling that, that wasn't particularly attractive. But I know there was a sentimental value to it because he had built that with his dad, you know, in the 70s. So, again, I, I asked the contractor to salvage everything, send it to my office. You know, at the end of the job, we did this. So this, if you look at this picture here, um, and I'll go back to the other story in a second, but this sure. stone wall behind, we wanted, because it's, because this is the entry to the hotel and to the um, health club, want to do something that was sort of monumental and had a presence. But if you're hopefully seeing it three or four times a week, if you're a member, you know, to the health club, that it didn't become too ostentatious or, you know, overly signed. So these, each of those slabs weighs over 3,000 pounds. We had this, Kavitha, who was a project architect, went to India on a Tuesday. Thursday, she picked out the stone. We had it fabricated over there. We were like, um, each piece again weighs over, you know, 3,000 pounds. Even the reception desk with, for the check-in is one 8,000 block of stone that we we had procured, fabricated, and shipped over. So when I say there's, where there's a will, there's a way, this didn't go through the general contractor, this went through my office. I think we paid $6,000 for the fabrication of the stone and then another 60 to ship it and get it installed. But still, um, that was an important part. Do you, um, do you build any of the projects yourself or are you just more of, uh, Hey, where there's something hard or weird, we, we can handle the, uh, that's, that's yes. We sort of do the harder, weirder stuff, yep. whether it's custom methane and there's, I mean, that's, that's an area that we're looking to do, but pr I'd probably start more on the residential side of it and not the, not the bigger commercial projects, but you can see like the wood ceiling we've used over 80 miles of this European oak in this project between the fitness floor and some of the other areas. Um, and did you say there was another story you wanted to come back to, but we got yeah, stuck Yeah, if you on... go back, if you go forward, I think there's, yeah, if you go through these slides here, like this is the hotel. Okay. There we go. I think you're in the hotel part. There's a, there is a, if you go into the health club part. Let's see. Back to the we... home page, I'm sorry. No worries. Um, so. Oh, some construction photos. <laughs> it was in our office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, that's a nice. Yeah. I don't know if I can navigate that smoothly through all of it. But, but I mean, the story on the other thing with the, uh, the client, you know, and the old club, we ended up making this decorative ceiling feature over the entry to the main club. And um, we won a divine detail award for it from the AAA, which was again, a nice, again, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't go to Bangkok probably with the owners or my client's dad and had this sort of moment with him there, there was sort of sentimental on that side. Yep. Um, 
going through the 2008 recession, um, are you, this is more topical. So maybe in a year or two, this, this part of the conversation won't matter. Um, but are you seeing a pullback? Are you seeing acceleration? Are you seeing stoppage? Are you concerned? I mean, we. I mean, it seems like. I mean, we're incredibly busy right now. Honestly, it's. Um, there seems to be a lot going on, and I think. I mean, I think we always proceed with caution in terms of growing. I mean, we're not. We're still a boutique firm. We're maybe twenty-five. You know, people at this point. I think if we had to add another 10 people, I would want to almost stop there. I think at some point um, you can, you stop being nimble enough where we can handle everything. And I think, you know, we have, we probably have 15 projects going in the office right now. And, I, and what I like about how we work is that there is no interiors department. I mean, it's everything's sort of much more holistic and lateral that, I mean, that in the way that architecture historically contained the arts, it seems like as, be, as, it be, as, as it's become more of a commodity, it's become a container for the arts where you design the building, it goes to the interiors department and it becomes this plug and play and it becomes more of a commodity. And I don't, and I really don't think it should be. I think, you know, a lot, a lot of the times, you know, we'll, we've acted as both architectural record for interior designers. We've, we've done the interiors where there's another architectural record we're working under and we've done both and we prefer to do both. And I think we're good at it in the sense that, you know, some of the materials and finishes can become, you know, part of, they become part of the idea. They don't become the idea. They become a way to express what the concept is. And I think too often, you know, we've gotten into projects where we've been asked to do the interiors and it's, it's sort of a mediocre or often, you know, bad space planning that you try to fix it with, with the decorating, which, I don't know if I sort of even like that word because <laughs> I yeah. think, I mean, my belief is that that emotional impact or the, that the real sort of magic or architecture only exists really in the negative space. Like, you know, it's that space in between. And if you've ever, I'm sure you've been to Europe and some of the big cathedrals, it doesn't matter whether the lights are on or off, you know, you're in these sort of wonderful spaces and it's not about the, the latest trend wall covering or whatever. And all that can sort of help and embellish it maybe, but it's, that shouldn't be, you know, what defines the room, so to speak. Uh, practically speaking, do you hire architects and just uh, have them be well-versed and, 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 and go through these projects? Or do you hire interior designers and make sure they're part of the project um, all the way we're, through? We're primarily 100% architects in the office. We have a couple of interiors that are wonderful. You know, there's no sort of pecking order in that hand, yeah. but... And I think we just do a lot of material research. Like we probably have, we have a 5,000 square foot, you know, material library, massive. We have a full shop with, you know, we have a beam saw that can cut tile for, if we want a miter, do a full miter on a, uh, some porcelain tile, we can do it. So when the, I've, again, I've jumped on planes many times with a piece of tile that's perfectly mitered by the architect. So when the tile person tells me that you can't do it, let's just use a schluter, it's easier. You know, I just sent him a picture of the beam saw now. I said, do you really want me to do this again? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so I think that part of it gives us from the construction background, gives us a lot of credibility and being able to sort of hands on, not, not be afraid to, to do some of that work. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, before we wrap up, any topic you wanted to uh, touch on or, or any message you want to convey? I think it's, I mean, so I have, I have two boys, um, 19 and 21, Cameron and Evan, and it's interesting. I didn't, I, I did not push either one of them into, into the profession. And as much as I love it, I think you sort of have to, I think you sort of have to love this profession or, you know, and I think, I think at least those of us who sort of believe in it and that it sort of adds value and we're sort of, I mean, sort of a living art in a way that we're, we're responsible for hopefully making people's lives better or, you know, how they experience the world. And, you know, I, I'd say the same thing when we're, when we're doing like you to be a good citizen, you sort of have to give something back. And I think to be a good architect, you sort of have to give something back to the street. And so that's a lot of it in what we do. It's not this sort of singular event, but we, you know, we sort of coexist with and can be inspired by, you know, what's, what's next to us. And, I honestly think I learned a lot of that even when I when I went to Barcelona, I studied a lot of Gaudi and Jujol's work, obviously. And it wasn't necessarily for the aesthetics for what it looked like, but how it engaged. And like there's some of Gaudi's work, which is aesthetically so different than anything else around. But you can see some of the scroll work coming down in that horizontal street line. Like there's one on Lepatoria on Casa Gracia that where um, the building next door, there's a free, it's very traditional building, but you know, Gaudi's, you know, very organic scroll work. It, it acknowledges that line and connects to it without replicating it. So, and that's where I like, I think sort of doing your own work, you know, not following trends. And um, that's where I think, that's where I think is what's important for what we do. Absolutely. Probably more of an answer than you wanted. <laughs> no, no. Uh, lastly, if people want to follow your work or, or get in touch, where, where should they go to, to find more? I mean, I think our website, DMAC Architecture Interiors, we we did flip the DMAC Architecture PC to Architecture Interiors because we're doing, we always get the question, who does your interiors? And we're sick of answering that saying we do. So we, we've sort of taglined the and interiors to the back of what we do. So yeah, it's DMAC Architecture Interiors. We're in Chicago. Easy to find, I think. Awesome. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much.